We're in uh, our ongoing study uh, in the book of Titus, and we're in chapter 2, and specifically at verse 6 is where we want to pick up. Uh, Let's quickly review for a couple of you maybe who haven't been here um, for a bit. The the epistle of Titus is one of Paul's last letters, um, what we call the pastoral epistles, and he is he Paul is writing to Titus, uh, his disciple, uh, his mentee, if you will, who has been charged with bringing order to the churches on Crete. And chapter one uh, is about him, that is Titus, being instructed to get a leadership team together, which he does. And Paul talks about the qualities and qualifications character traits. Chapter 2, which is where we are, Paul gives him kind of a a strategy, even perhaps more specific, a tactic of how to organize the church for what is the thesis of the books we call the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. That sound doctrine produces godly living. That, if you ever want the thesis statement for those three books, there it is. So don't forget it. It'll be on the quiz next week. And then at the end, you have to do a thought paper on it. So none of that is true. I just thought I'd wake you up. But um, here in this section where we are looking at how Paul instructs Titus to organize the ministries within the local churches around age group ministries. Here's for the older gentlemen. Here's for the older women. Here's for the younger women. Now, where we are picking up this morning in verse 6, to the younger men. Now this, you may or may not understand that, but this section is really important to me because this, in many ways, is how I saw most of my ministry throughout my life, working with young young adult men, although obviously I had many students who were women, I never worked in a mentoring relationship with women and think that was a wise thing to do. But nonetheless, what you see here is a, to me, an incredibly wise way to impact young adults who are men. So let me read verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8, and then we'll go back and take it apart. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects. Now, you must note a difference there. Yourself is singular. And then in the next part of the phrase, to be a model of good works and in your teaching, singular. So now verse 7 is focusing on Titus. What does Titus do? What's Titus' role in mentoring and discipling and instructing and equipping young men? Be a model of good works. That's how the ESV translates it. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. There's our word, sound again, that cannot be condemned. And then a result clause, an intended result. If you do this so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Notice the plural, us. So he's including himself and all of the leadership in that pronoun. So, again, to me, uh, this has always been a very personal verse, um, a set of verses that have been important in how I think about the kinds of things I've done for most of my life. 
Younger men to be self-controlled. It's interesting that he cites that virtue right out of the shoot. Why? Yeah, and especially for young men, isn't it? I mean, that, that's an issue for all people who come to Christ, for all people generally, but self-control. To be able to control yourself, control your passions, control your energy, all of that. To be self-disciplined, and so on. But for men, young guys particularly, young adults, that can be a real issue, because you often act impulsively, you follow your your desires, and, and so on. You just act. So self-control is such an important virtue for all of us, but especially for young guys. Bill Hybels years ago wrote an article uh, on what he called self-leadership. And I think I mentioned that over the last couple of years uh, before. But for me personally, that was one of the most valuable articles I'd read. I used to hand it out to people. Because the argument of the little article was, if you can't lead yourself, you will never lead others. And so it's just important to self-control, self-discipline. But he's saying here that, that being able to control yourself is the most important virtue for young men. Then, I think, then Paul says, Titus, I'm really putting this on your shoulders. I want you to take this responsibility. So again, verse 7 is directed to Titus personally. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. If you were, you know, the word we use today is mentoring more than discipling, but if you were mentoring a group of young men, and you wanted to assign them role models to follow and to learn from. Whom would you whom would you assign? Let's just be real cynical. In the broader culture, whom would you assign as good role models? I'm I'm struggling to think of any. You know, really. Now I'm I'm being again I'm being a little bit cynical and perhaps too hard on things, but. It is, in the broader culture, it is really hard to think of valuable role models that you would assign to a young guy. Follow this guy around. Learn from this guy. Spend a lot of time from this guy. Just think in athletics. Well, Tim Tebow, maybe he'd be a good one. But I'm struggling to think of some others. Danny Woodhead. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you you understand what I'm saying, though. And, I mean, in Hollywood... uh, music. So it's the kind of thing that Titus is being instructed by Paul because I'm almost positive because, I mean, I've studied the Greco-Roman world pretty thoroughly. In the Greco-Roman world, you would really struggle to find good role models. And within the, the, a small burgeoning <coughs> church, you know what burgeoning means, it's, it's growing and you know, so on. That's going to be an issue. So Paul says, Titus, you do that. You, you show yourself to be a model of good works. My, one of my favorite verses, which is one of the greatest challenges, is Philippians 4, 9, where Paul writes, whatever you've seen, whatever you've heard, what, what, whatever you, you've observed in me, do it. You know, now you have to think about that, because it's like, would you say that to somebody? 
you know, like I, Jim Beck, I could, I would say, follow Jim Beck. You got a good mom. But I know Jim pretty well. I don't think Jim would ever say, you want to know how to pull off Christian life? Follow me around. I don't think Jim would say that, knowing his humility and so on. But it's that, it's that kind of thing. But the, the point is, when you have any kind of leadership role, any kind of role, young guys are going to look at you and either they're going to respond negatively or they're going to respond positively. And so Paul is just saying, Titus, I'm putting this on your shoulders. You be a model. You be a model for these guys in, in good works. Yeah, please. Well, it might be hard to find people on a national scale that we'd want to use as a role model. I can actually say that there have been a lot of older men oh, yeah. who have played into my life uh, in very strong, powerful ways. And there are maybe people I went to church with or people mm-hmm. I worked with. Or, mm-hmm. But there are, there are men out there oh, absolutely. who play into this. And, absolutely. My my illustration in being so cynical is you have to work hard to find good ones because they're not as available. You, you know what, Peggy and I, this this was crazy. The other night, what night was it? I forget. The other night, we were both pretty tired, so we just turned on the television. It was 9 o'clock. And, you know, you go around at 9 o'clock at night, start looking at television. There's not a lot on. You know what we found? I don't even remember what the channel was. Roy Rogers Theater. <laughs> I mean, it's okay, well, Roy Wright, and that's back in the 50s. I mean, the acting is just absolutely horrible compared to, I mean, it's so fake, and you think, I mean, there's no authenticity. But the, the, we, after we watched it, it was about 15 minutes we watched it, uh, and it, we watched from about the middle to the end. You know, one of the really positive aspects of that, despite the acting wasn't that great, a tremendous moral story. A tr- I mean, a tremendous illustration of good role models, affirming positive behavior, uh, affirming the kind of qualities you want to see, and making a very clear statement, all this other stuff, stay away from it. And then, you know what followed next? We, I couldn't get over it. The Lone Ranger. I mean, I just, these are shows, I mean, I was, these were from the 50s when I was a little boy. They're the things I used to watch with my friends, and I couldn't believe they're still on. But again, the same thing. You know, however, the acting isn't terrific. It's a little better than Roy Rogers, but the thing is, there's those stories and, and the message it's sending is a very positive message. I'm not sure that is always true in a lot of the, the things that we, we, we look at as entertainment today. How about the Waltons? The what? The Waltons. Oh, the Waltons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Peggy has watched that. I've I not watched that too much. But yeah, that's another. And her favorite, I mean, indisputably, hands down, is Little House on the Prairie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think she knows every one of those by heart. But Oh, yeah, yeah, there's another one. Now, this is nostalgia, so let's knock it off. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it's, um, it's something that uh, I know that was the case when, when I was raising my son, and now I'm thinking about that with my grandson. Um, the kind of role models, what do you want them to be exposed to? And so the neat thing about what Paul is instructing here for Titus is, you put it on your shoulders to be the good role model. And then he adds, and in your teaching, now th- th- this is very kind of formal instruction, but it also can have the informal element to it because of modeling. What, what do you want to show? What do you want to teach? What do you want to instruct? What do you want to model? Integrity? That's just the best way to translate that word, and I don't think... 
any of us have a difficulty understanding what that means. Dignity, that has been translated a variety of ways. Seriousness, but a dignity. Um, let's talk about that for just a minute. If we just take the English word dignity, what comes to mind there? You want to model, you want to instruct integrity. Okay, got that. Dignity. What? Well, what's involved with that? Yeah, please. You, you assign a character. You assign. I think I, I, I personally love the word dignity. Mm. I think it's a great word. And I think dignity to give someone dignity is to give them respect, to see them um, in the image of God. That you treat them um, with a uh, kind of a servant leadership attitude, so that uh, there's there's a real quality in how you choose to respond to the individual. That's kind of how I try that. So it's involving, and I, I, I like how you put all of that. There's some good, good statements. Um, it's how you both see yourself and see others. It's, it's, it's an interplay between self-image, self-worth, but also the worth and value of other people. You're both dignified in how you relate to people, but you're treating people with dignity. I think that's a, that's a good way. It's the flip side of that same coin. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, that that would have been that would have been a difficult word. That would have been a difficult virtue to model, to see. Each, what you saw in the Greco-Roman world was high standard, high view of law, but very very cynical, hypocritical, inconsistent way of living it. I mean, the, the great gift of the Roman civilization to the Western world, to Western civilization, is rule of law. That's their greatest contribution. But they, they, they said, we want a civilization based on the rule of law and structure. But then when they lived it, it was all about power and self-aggrandizement. That's what it was all about. Whereas Jesus comes into that civilization and the gospel comes into that civilization and agrees with some of what they're saying, but there's an enablement and a power that comes through the salvation and indwelling the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. So I just, I really like how Paul is telling Timothy here, explaining to Timothy. And then, verse 8, sound speech. There's our word sound again. Remember, that means healthy, that which is conducive to, but sound speech. It cannot be condemned. I don't think any of us has any problem understanding what he means by sound speech, right? It's the way we talk. In the book of James, the epistle of James, is probably the longest discussion in the New Testament. On He calls it our tongue, but you know, not meaning that which is in our mouth, but our words, how we speak. And James makes it so clear, you can do far more damage with the words you say, the words you choose to you, how you talk to someone, than anything physically. You can really hurt and shred somebody with your words. So Paul is telling Titus, help the young guys. You do that. You teach them. You model for them. Sound, healthy, edifying, affirming. I'm trying to think of all different types of words to embellish this a bit. Speak. Yeah. 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 And and the, the words that you use, how you talk. It's been said that 
the, the, the words we use are a window into our heart. And I think, you know, I think there's something, something to that. And it's like, it's, it, it's so, it cannot be condemned. And I think that's, again, rather self-evident what that means. But, um, yeah, uh, Rob. I think a week or two ago, someone used the term above reproach. Mm, absolutely. That's in chapter one of this book. Absolutely. And I think in our speech, uh, in our conversation, uh, when I, I've led a number of guys to Christ, and some of them have been um, guys whose speech and language was, was pretty awful to be around. I mean, you know, like every third word was profanity and and, and just degradating language. I mean, not, not just profanity, but just, oh. And you know, I've, I've noticed with quite a few guys over the years, that is one of the first things you really, really see change. They're, they're so aware of that. They're so conscious of that. And there's just a self, not, not only because they come to understand by reading the Word and, and so on that, that's not something they should be doing, but they really become convicted of that. And that takes tremendous discipline to get over that. Because that habit of just every third word is something awful. <laughs> but that was true. And um, this maybe doesn't matter, but I spent a lot of time studying the Greco-Roman world, and I've, I've read a lot of the original sources and stuff like that. I'm not kidding you. It is, uh, it is staggering. It is staggering, the profanity that you can find in what a lot of the Caesars used. How Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the nephew of Julius Caesar, the letters and stuff we found, the, the language he used, I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, you just, you don't expect that. I don't know what I expected when I first started this. You know, I expected that, well, at least he would be dignified. He's not at all. And it's just to the Greco-Roman world, the Greco-Roman world was used to the language of the gutter. But you have a Christian in the, in the island of Crete, and you have Christian leaders being developed and mentored. I think it's instructive that he says to Titus, Titus, you teach, you model, you instruct these guys a way to talk so that they won't be, that's not going to be condemnatory. Out of the mouth, out of the mouth comes the things of the heart. And so he's, he's, he's zeroing in on that. It's interesting he says that of young men more than the other group that he's talk, uh, talked about. So I think, like I said, this is as relevant today in 2018 as it was about A.D. 66 when this was first written. Yeah, oh, please. Isn't there more here than just the absence of coarse language? It's the evidence of wisdom, um, affirmation, I mean, spiritual insight. Oh, absolutely. All of those kinds of things. Absolutely. Because sound is healthy. It's a broad word that would involve all of those kinds of uh, all those kinds of things. And usually, that's just the nature of adolescence or young adulthood. You don't normally talk like that. Wisdom doesn't necessarily come out of the mouth of a twenty-year-old. Sometimes out of a three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But you know, it's just uh, it's the kind of thing that. Let me put another thesis on the table. The changed life is the greatest evidence of the truth of the gospel. Do you agree with that? The changed life is the greatest evidence 
of the gospel, making a change in a person's life, making a difference. I think it's, a, it's one of the greatest pieces of evidence that you can put on the table, this is true. It works. It is relevant. But change, the changed life, because God changes us from the inside out. He changes our heart. Not overnight. It's the process of, of what we've talked many times of sanctification. But here you see Titus with this enormous responsibility to organize the young men and focus on the kinds of virtues that you want to see. Because these are the next leaders. Right? These are the leaders. And if you don't focus on developing the, the leaders, the future leaders in all areas, that's why the school I used to lead, our mission statement was developing servant leaders for the home, the church, and the world. When I, we developed that when I was president. But that home, church, world, they're the circles of your life. And so they're the kind of leaders you want in all those circles. Now, it, and that was... It was very easy to get passionate about that because you saw the impact of that in graduate after graduate over the years. You really saw that. And Titus has the same kind of assignment, and I think that's why, I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. That's why Paul is saying to Titus, you take this responsibility personally, Titus, because we must focus on the next generation. And the young men are the most important focal point for that and and uh, wise missionaries who go into a cross-cultural situation if you know anything about the history of missions wise missionaries would they would of course present the gospel want people come to know Christ but one of the real focal points was usually the young because you have you have the opportunity now to completely reshape everything about them how they're going to think how they're going to live because they're going to be the next generation and if they're sold out to Jesus in that cross-cultural situation, then that's where you'll start to see the transformation of the culture. And William Carey did that in India, the very first one of the first major modern missionaries in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And you started to see some of those horrific things in Hindu civilization change, like women throwing themselves on the burning pyre of their husband. And that started to end because the gospel transformed lives, which then transformed the culture. Okay, I saw uh, Woody. Yeah, I just wanted to know um, about what age Titus was and how long he had been a Christian. It's a good question. It's a big tall order for a young man. It is. We don't know, um, I can't answer the question with accuracy of how long he was a Christian. The estimate is, when Paul's writing this, Titus is in his 30s. Okay. okay. Timothy was younger, do you think? Uh, when uh, didn't Paul refer to him as a, a being a son to me and, and right and so right and a spiritual son of course not a physical son Timothy was led to Christ by his mom and his grandma Yodia uh, that's mentioned in another passage of scripture the estimate or guess the inference is that usually if Timothy and Titus are very close to the same age they're not teenagers, that's for sure, <laughs> but probably in their early 30s. And they've both been traveling with Luke? Uh, t t uh, Timothy had been. Timothy had been. Timothy was a part of the second missionary journey of Paul, along with Titus, uh, I'm sorry, along with uh, Silas and uh, Luke. Uh, 
Dr. Luke, who was, of course, on the second missionary journey. Titus, uh, Titus uh, is not on the second, but he will be a part of the third missionary journey, briefly. So, yeah. All right. Um, I want you to notice one more thing before we leave these young men. Notice the result clause at the end of verse 8. This focus on these young men and Titus, what, notice the result clause. So that, this is the intended result, that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. What does that mean, put to shame? Our opponents may be put to shame. It's shut down. They can't say anything evil about yeah. Yeah. you. Yeah. 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 You're, you're modeling the kind of virtues that evidence change, the changed life. The greatest, and this is, we're never going to avoid this. We'll never be able to avoid this. But the greatest, most effective charge people level against the church is inconsistency and hypocrisy. I mean, really. I mean, I, I don't know how many, I can't even number that number, n- give you a number of the number of people who said to me, well, I don't go to church, it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And my answer is always, yeah, come join, everybody is. We're all struggling with that. If you, if you expect to join a church that's perfect, please don't join, then you'll ruin it. Nobody, <laughs> nobody is perfect. We're all a work under, in progress. We're all a building under construction, all of those metaphors. But Paul is saying, you know, Timothy or Titus, working with these young guys, and they see these kinds of virtues, integrity, dignity, sound, healthy, affirming, wise speech. They're not going to have much to really say. You're going to put them to shame. Just, just by the way they're seeing lives change. And I think that's, that's our goal. I don't think anybody, anybody that's reasonable, of course, there are always people taking pot shots, but anybody that's reasonable, if they see changed lives, not perfect lives, something's going on here. A number of years ago, this is really quite a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Please. Uh, on the on the uh, on the shame, you know, a little bit of research that I did, the the, the Greek it's to turn one upon himself, sort of produce a feeling of shame, but it should be a wholesome shame that in, involves change of conduct in the one attempting to antagonize. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it it's, it's a construct. It's supposed to be a constructive shame. You you shame them and then you point them in the right direction yeah. and try to try to try to bend them back on, on the path. That's really a that's really a good point, Fred. It isn't shame in the sense of publicly humiliating them and destroying them. It's it's the shame in the sense that you you really need to come join us. What's happening among the lives of these guys? You need to participate. You can benefit from this. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. It silences the critics so that they will take a serious look at what you really represent. And that use of shame only appears three places. Three are word. Three places. Three are word. Mm-hmm. Here, First Corinthians four fourteen and Second uh, Thessalonians three fourteen. That's good. That's really good. So another hand, you're on. Yeah, I. As you started to talk about that, so that they would feel compelled not to say anything or to say anything, thinking about 
how it applies today and how some people, it doesn't matter what you do, they'll find a way to criticize it, even if it is about reproach. Of course. But I think we're starting to see that there are consequences for continuing to try to criticize others and the public seeing how empty those criticisms are. Uh, they so. can, hopefully will. <laughs> Now, the last topic, to keep going here, I, at some point I do want to finish Titus, so, you know, <laughs> before the Lord comes back, I think. But the last group that he addresses, that is Paul addressing to Titus, are, the, are those relating to the economic arrangements of the first century. Now, we've talked about this before, but let me make a, a one or two quick introductory comments. The major economic relationship of the ancient world was slave to master. Most of the work that was done in the ancient world was done by slaves. Um, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, in the Greco-Roman world, work was done by slaves. It, this estimate is very hard to have accurate numbers here, but it is estimated that uh, by the first century, the population of the Roman Empire was about 100 million I mean, the whole Mediterranean world that they governed, okay? About 100 million people. And it is estimated approximately 55 to 60 million of that 100 million were slaves. And the other thing, just to remember, that the reason people would be in slavery is varied. It could be the reason for debt. Whatever reasons would be, if you're in agriculture and you'd borrow some money to plant, whatever... You can't pay it, you would go into debt. So in some cases, slavery was almost like an indentured servitude arrangement. Do you know what I mean by that? Maybe I shouldn't talk about it. But where it was a temporary thing. It didn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily mean that you'll be a slave your entire life. In some cases it were, but for the most part, it was not, and this is an original thought with me, but it was not unusual for a typical person not in the top aristocracy of Greco-Roman world, which was very small anyway, but just a typical, it was not unusual for a person to go in and out of slavery a couple times during their life. Now, the, the other thing, you, just, you cannot think of slavery. When you read a word, slave, in the New Testament, don't think of chattel, racial, slavery, in the pre-Civil War South. That, it wasn't like that. It wasn't racial. It wasn't chattel. It was... Um, like I said, it was just an economic arrangement. It was still awful. Quite frankly, it was horrible. So what he's talking, though, is about those of you who are the slaves, those of you who are in bondage for whatever reasons. You come up, become a Christian. You become a disciple of Jesus. How should this affect your life? Remember the thesis. Sound doctrine produces godly living. So he says things that are just extraordinary. Slaves? Be submissive to your masters. Now, there's that word again, submissive. We talked about this before. Submission is the lifestyle of the believer. Submission to authority. God is the God of order. And in God's directives, in the way God creates things, in the way God, God, God knows what we're about, and he knows order and authority structures are part of what he has created. And so in this economic relationship, you have that disposition to yield and that inclination to follow 
the leadership of your boss. You're not a revolutionary. You're not going to assassinate him. You submit to his authority. Now, let me throw something into the mix here and put this on the table. The Bible from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the Bible presents two principles. And those principles are often held in great tension. Principle number one is you submit to authority. Whether it's government, the church, to God, to one another, within the marriage relationship, etc. The second principle is you submit and obey until it's a sin to submit and obey. There are the two principles. God is the God of order. God sets up institutional structures, family, the state, the church, there are institutions he created. And the idea of that is to produce order and stability in society. God is not a God of chaos and disorder and dysfunction. But at the same time, because this is a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world, you may have a boss or a governmental leader that's going to order you to do something that's a sin. You're under no obligation to do that. Do you have examples of that? Well, how about Daniel? Daniel, chapter 1, he's in the Babylonian Empire. He is now being trained in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. They give him non-kosher food, food sacrificed to idols. What does he do? I'm not going to eat that. I'm sorry, I'm not going to eat that. And then you know, the, there's dialogue, it's not important. But he's defying that. He said, I won't do that. You have, you have the Hebrew midwives. You, I mean, you have all kinds of... And then you have in Acts 4 and Acts 5, you have Peter and John. The Sanhedrin says, do not preach Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. What do they do? They go out and preach Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. And what happens to them? They end up in jail. And they stand before the Sanhedrin. They say, I'm sorry. We have to obey God, not you. Jesus told us to do this, and we're going to obey him. Well, that means you're going to put you in jail, okay? And I mean, that's the tension. It's, it's the struggle we have when we study, you know, the, the early years of World War II or the, the, right before it starts with what the Nazis are doing. And you have people in the Netherlands and other people saying, I'm sorry, we're not going to round up the Jews. We're going to hide them. We're defying what the government is saying. That's, so that tension is there. Uh, you know, if a child is ordered by his parents, I want you to go into that store and shoplift those two things that come out. They're under no obligation to do that. But you say, well, they're his parents. He's supposed to. Well, you obey until it's a sin to obey. So it's just that tension. Now, you and I in the United States of America... We have, I mean, rarely, it has to happen, I guess, but rarely do we deal with much of that tension. But you get outside of the United States, you do, you do. There's a lot of Christians who are struggling with those issues almost every day. Do I obey Jesus or do I obey the state or my boss or, or whatever? So that's a sidebar. It's a bunny trail. We're now back on track. But he's saying to the slaves, the employees, the workers, be submissive. They're to be well-pleasing. That's not necessarily the best way to translate that, although it, it captures it pretty well. It's an attitude. 
It's an attitude about your work. You seek to please your boss, not be argumentative. Now, we, he don't see it here, but if you go to a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and following, Paul, it's a long little discord. That sounds, that sounds contradictory. It's the longest discourse on work in the New Testament. But he says there, same thing, you know, slaves, obey your masters, be sincere, well-pleasing, because your real boss is Jesus. That's what he said. I paraphrase it, but that's what he says. Your real boss is Jesus. So that means these kinds of attitudes for the slave who has become a Christian, he understands. I'm really serving Christ. My real boss is Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 24 of Colossians 3. Not pilfering. I, I, I'm glad they translate it that way. Pilfering is stealing, but little little stealing things. You know, stealing a little here, here. And in a work situation, very easy to steal a stapler, to steal scissors, to steal, I don't know what else, paper, I don't know what all the things but it's that, no, you're a person of integrity and honesty. And showing all good faith, that's a terrible translation. Because when you read the word faith, you think faith in Jesus. That's not really what it means. Showing all good faith, you're trustworthy. You're a trustworthy person. Now there's a result clause. <clears throat> so that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. What a strange way to end it. Slaves. Your behavior. How you live. Your changed life. Changed life is the greatest evidence of the gospel. So that in everything, this is the intended result, so that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What's he getting at there? Joel? The NIV says so that uh, we'll make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive, which I think is, is really uh, meaningful or a good way to say it. I think I remember one time Bill Hybels, another book he wrote, he was talking about bringing people to Christ. And he said, you know, people have to be attracted to you and then be attracted to Christ through you. So if you're not an attractive person, not Physically, Physic, I know what you mean. How you live and how you why, act. Why would people want exactly, 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 exactly. That's good. Put it on like a garment. Yes. Put it on like a garment. Wear it. Like you adorn your body with that lovely shirt you decided to put on this day. I just paid him a compliment. <laughs> Uh, I used to tell my students, well, I won't get into that. Um, so let's go back to the thesis of this whole book, Sound Doctrine Produces Godly Living. Of all the groups that he's chosen, that now, I mean, he chosen to talk to Titus, of all the groups that Paul has chosen, to me, this is the most significant one in terms of radical life change. And perhaps that's why he ends it with this. When Jesus Christ comes into the life of a person 
who's in the economic world, and I'm trying to put it the way we, we think today in 2018, and the workers and the employees, and they evidence these virtues. That is one of the greatest pieces of evidence of the changed life that the gospel produces. People will notice it. What if workers, what if we had 100% of the workforce manifesting these virtues? What would happen, just, I'm curious, just think about it for a minute. What would happen to productivity? We'll go through the ceiling. I was listening to uh, a speaker the other day, and they said 20% of workers are actively disengaged in their job. Wow. They're trying really? to circumvent what's happening. Wow. And, and one of my friends who's a Christian. That's one in five. Yeah. One of my friends is a Christian. I called him yesterday on his personal phone, and he's a service tech for a big company. And I, what do you answer the phone during the day for? He goes, I answer the phones for my friends, not for my boss. For my boss, I'm busy. <laughs> I, I I think it's pretty common. Yeah. I mean, this and this this uh, speaker said the bigger the company, the more likely there is to be active disengagement. And by that, they're circumventing what the goals are of the company. So that makes that's really an, that's an astonishing statistic. Twenty percent. Smaller companies necessarily, but everybody's got somebody in their company that's doing that. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's. But what right. if they live by this? That's right. Well, I mean, that's the, that again, I think is one of the most dramatic examples of how the gospel really does change people. And then the larger effect, this is an original thought with me at all. But the axiom of the New Testament is you change culture by changing people. You don't change the culture and that changes people. In other words, you can make a lot of laws and you can get them on the books and you can have a big, thick employee manual but how will you coerce them in matters of attitude and heart? That's pretty hard to do. You can make it very difficult, of course, you can fire them. But Paul is talking about that, and that's what he's saying to Titus, that inner transformation, these are heart issues. These are heart issues. But if Jesus is changing the heart, then that affects everything else. That's the, and listen, I know you, I'm sure you thought about, I've said this a number of times over in my life. Genuine biblical Christianity is the only worldview that says God changes you internally, not only externally. Christianity is not a set of rules. Christianity is a relationship where Jesus is transforming us from the inside out. Islam doesn't do that. Hinduism doesn't do that. Buddhism doesn't do that. It's rules. It's a rules-based, performance-based approach to, to your faith. That's not what Christianity is. If your view of Christianity is a set of rules, you've missed it. That's not what it is. It's that relationship. And this is what Paul is doing here. You, you Titus, take it upon yourself to help these young men, and now slaves, to look at their relationship with Jesus Christ as transformational. They're changing. And they're dressing up with the doctrine of God our Savior. I'm paraphrasing the literalness of this result clause. They're dressing up. They're dressing up with the gospel of our Savior. You're wearing it on your sleeve. And I mean, it's just a neat way to think about that. Um, 
and it's it's part of <laughs> my wife and I've been married to her for forty nine years and um uh, you maybe don't notice that, but I'm a very intense person. You, you probably haven't ever noticed that, but I'm a very intense person. And Peggy, I, she said it again today. Honey, don't forget to smile. <laughs> and she, what she means by that, and she's nailed it, is I am so intense that sometimes I forget that, you know, it's nice to greet people with a smile. To let them know that the joy of the Lord is not only in my heart, bubbling over with all the excitement of things in the Word of God, but I also show it with a nice smile. So if I am not smiling enough, it's my fault. Don't blame my wife. She is constantly reminding me of the need for me to show what's in my heart, which is a smile. All right, that's way too convicting. Let's move on to the next paragraph. Any God, God saves souls but preserves personality. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, even the rough edge parts of that personality. Magnificent section. I, I, it's one of my favorites, especially that dealing with young men. I just I love that section. It's a great, great instruction for those of us who have the opportunity to impact young adults. It's really neat. Okay? Now, I want you to notice the first word of verse 11. In the Greek language, it's a causal particle. It's a causal word. So he ended the paragraph about instructing all of the different groups in the church on the island of Crete. For in everything, you may adorn the doctrine of of God our Savior, because the grace of God has appeared. Now, I think you all have this. If you have your notes on page seven of the note, I put in the notes a copy of a PowerPoint slide that that I, I have all of this stuff on PowerPoint slides. But anyway, I I did you see that? If you have your notes, just. I'd like to use that as we, um, as we look at this passage, okay? Because I want you to observe several things with me, okay? As we look at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. That's page 6 on the... Uh, or page 6? Okay. That's right, I forgot. Yeah. When this went out, it went out in a convoluted way. But whatever page it is, it looks like this. This is what you're looking for, Okay. Well, that's the, it's, yeah, that's, yeah, the teaching about grace, but it's a copy of the PowerPoint slide. Okay? Now, the reason this is such a powerful paragraph is this is one of the unique passages in God's Word on grace, but on grace as it impacts on how we live. Now, what I want you to observe, there is a present, past, and future aspect to the grace of God in our lives. I want to read this, and then we'll come back and take it apart. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, just if it's in color, it's in blues and red. Just to ignore that, let me follow the text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting, or you could translate that, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing 
of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, verse 11 deals with the past dimension of grace in our lives. Verse 12 focuses on the present dimension of grace in our lives. And verses 13 and 14 give focus to the future dimension of grace. Now, do you think I can erase that? Does anyone have authority in this building, or do you think I better not? I probably better not. You can erase it. Okay, now did everybody hear Joel say that? <laughs> Under right. his authority, I'm erasing this. Put this down there, Joel. <laughs> so if we get castigated for this, who will, who will we blame? Joel! Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fred's not here, so... <laughs> yes, you can't blame when you need it. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's do a couple of things here. What is the standard definition for grace? Unmerited favor. Now, as this term is used in the New Testament, it speaks of saving grace. Sustaining grace and then common grace. Okay? The unmerited favor of God, common grace. Common grace, I'm going to be in somebody's way, but common grace is the unmerited favor God shows to all humanity. Jesus speaks of it, for example. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. The oxygen that we breathe every single minute is God's common grace. He owes us nothing, but he offers us life. And so this is a kind, that is not what Paul's talking about here. So verse 11 deals with the saving grace of God. And verses 12 through 14 is the sustaining grace of God. Remember, unmerited favor. It's God showing us unmerited favor. The the major aspect in the scriptures of our sin condition is we are depraved. There's nothing we can do which will merit the favor of God. We can't earn it. But God in his grace offers it to us. And so what Paul is saying, and it's just, it's really kind of cool how he does this. Because remember, it's giving a reason why we adorn our bodies with sound doctrine. Where we, our lives just manifest and show the sound doctrine. Because the grace of God has appeared. Now if you look at this slide again, the word appeared in verse 11 is the same word as appearing, it's a participle, but appearing in verse 13. It's the same word. And they both focus on, that is both those words, the two advents of Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared. First advent. It's what he accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. The appearing of our great God and Savior is the future. Both, it's epiphaneo, it's the same word and it's wrapping around the bookmarks of God's salvation history. 
first advent, salvation is gained and offered to all humanity. Second advent, it's completed. So, when he says, for the grace of God has appeared, whom is that referring to? To, It's referring to Christ. Christ is the manifestation, the embodiment of God's grace. It's the grace of God personified, the grace of God manifested. And so he says, you know, why do we adorn ourselves with the doctrine of God our Savior? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. It's available to everyone, not just the Jews, to everyone. So that's past. The grace of God has been offered, it's completed, it's on the table for humanity to pick up. And when you pick it up, it has this function in your life. I just think this is fantastic. Verse 12. Training us. The word for train there is paideo. We get a word pedagogue from that. It was used, this was the term used of the tutors in the Greco-Roman world. Now, you, when you and I say tutor today, it's not the same way, but here's, here's Fred and John. They have children, and they're busy men. So what do they do? They hire tutors, and they, they, that, that tutor takes that child from age 5 or age 6 until they're 21, disciplines them, trains them, equips them, models before them, so that that, that tutor takes that child from in, almost infancy, or certainly very, very young child, to adulthood. That's the term that he chooses, that Paul chooses to use here. The grace of God trains us. Like you train up a child, preparing them for adulthood. So the grace of God is our tutor. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God equips us on the road to spiritual maturity. The babes in Christ. We're taken from babes to mature adults. Now, do you understand? I mean, this is this is what's really interesting. Paul's subject here is the grace of God. So it's the grace of God that does this. That's sustaining grace. What God could do is say, okay, here's the gift. It's on the table. Pick it up. Now you're on your own. See you in heaven. That's not what he does. His grace is an offer of salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pick up the gift that's ours. That's just the starting. So you could put it this way. Verse 11 deals with justification. Verses 12 through 14 deals with sanctification. It's the sustaining grace of God. He doesn't let us on our own. Now his grace, his grace, unmerited favor through friends that encourage and affirm and help us grow through the word of God which is God speaking to us through fellowship and prayer with him through I mean all of those wonderful manifestations of grace he says train us to renounce two negatives and to adopt three positives so 
but trains us to do what? To renounce. That's a great translation. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Oh, my goodness. It's a quarter up already. Uh, oh, I'm frustrated. Uh, Filipinos call this the God on our wrist, and I want to take it off and throw it against the wall. But I have to be sensitive to this. But let's look at that. Training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly Two negatives. And then a different infinitive. To live positive. There's that word again. It's a phrase. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Sound doctrine produces godly living. A proper understanding of the power of the grace of God changes us. And we learn. Again, that word train is a process word. This doesn't have instantaneous it doesn't happen overnight, but like a child training up a child from infancy to adulthood, that takes time, it takes discipline, it takes growth. It take, but it, we learn what? To renounce ungodliness. Those things that are not in conformity with the virtues and values of our God. And to renounce worldly passions. I, I don't think that takes a lot of imagination to understand what that means. The passions and, and, and what overwhelms and explains why people do what they do. You're learning to renounce those things. Now, I, I think because of time, I must stop. But tomorrow, what we want to, or I mean, uh, next Wednesday, what we want to do, I want to pick right up with verse 12 and summarize what is in 11, but pick right up with verse 12. This is a great passage, and I'm really frustrated that we didn't get it all done today. But that just gives you a reason to come back next week, because it is a very rich study of the grace of God. All right, let me pray here. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. That is, uh, it is like a two-edged sword. It, it cuts deeply in a very positive sense. The word of God is is important for the training in righteousness, as Paul says in, in 2 Timothy. And it's uh, it's something I think each one of us can acknowledge and can affirm. The Word of God at times makes us uncomfortable because it's always challenging us. It is your Word. It is your Word revealed. So it helps us to understand more and more who you are, more and more who we are, and more and more the difference your grace in our life makes. Thank you for these men, for each one of them all that you're doing in their lives, all aspects of their lives. We ask for your encouragement, uh, your enablement, your power, your strength in their lives because sound doctrine does change us. We thank you for the privilege that you give us to study the Word of God together each Wednesday. And I just pray that your Spirit who indwells us is taking that Word and slowly but surely transforming us into the image of their Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience with us, your love for us, your care for us. You promised to never leave us or forsake us. You promised that you'd be with us even to the end of the age. Lord, we're counting on that. We're depending on that. And we just trust you with each facet and area of our lives. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that. And in that spirit, we pray as we are now dismissed with your blessing. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Amen.